It's the Healthcare Solutions Project, the podcast where we dig into ideas and innovations that will help improve cost, quality, and health outcomes and enhance patient and clinician satisfaction. I'm your host, Don Siemens, and I count myself lucky to be part of this growing community who wants to promote and use today's innovations to build a better healthcare system. So I want to say thank you to everybody who is contributing to that. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen. And thank you to everyone who has written a five-star review. Thank you for being part of this community. Today's guest is doing great work in surfacing and discussing the challenges that the healthcare system is facing today, as well as talking about solutions. Jessica Sweeney Platt. Jessica, welcome to the Healthcare Solutions Project. Thank you, Don. It's wonderful to be here. Jessica is a researcher and educator and the vice president of research and editorial strategy at Athena Health, a leading healthcare technology company. She earned a bachelor's degree at Yale University and has more than 20 years experience in healthcare strategy, hospital physician integration, and culture change. So I usually start these interviews out, Jessica, with how did you get your start in healthcare? You, you were, what was it, a history major at Yale? How did you get into healthcare? I was a history major. I well, as I as I like to say, my my mother's just glad I have a job. Um, so <laughs> uh, no less true now than it was uh, twenty plus years ago. So um, getting into healthcare was I like to call it a little bit of a happy accident for me. I had graduated from college and I had moved to Washington D.C. thinking it was as good a place to be unemployed in as any other place in the country. <laughs> and um, after getting turned down for a number of jobs on Capitol Hill, um, including apparently I was not qualified to deliver mail for my own congressman. I oh got turned goodness. down for that job. But I did see an ad in the Washington Post, which was, you know, that dates me a little bit because there were actually ads in the Washington Post for <laughs> right. jobs. And it was for a researcher. And I thought, well, I don't know what else I can do, but I know that I can do research. So I landed at a company called the Advisory Board, mm. um, which is now part of um, the, the Optum Insights family of companies. And um, it was a great fit. I spent a number of years doing research on behalf of hospitals and health systems and physician groups. I took a little bit of a detour about a decade in um, and spent some time doing very similar types of research um, in the corporate sphere. So working on behalf of heads of corporate human resources, heads of corporate strategy, heads of corporate R&D. And then I came back to the advisory board with sort of a refreshed perspective and continued to do research. Um, this was kind of right around 2008. And um, that was when the healthcare reform conversation was picking up some significant steam Yes, and, and haven't looked back. So it's, um, it's been, it's been a really exhilarating uh, couple of decades uh, in, in healthcare for sure. So in terms of what you're doing right now, you are the head of research and editorial strategy at what I would term an EMR company. What, what does that entail? And why does Athena Health want you to do uh, that type of job for their organization. I'm just grateful that they do. Let me just uh, <laughs> start with that. Okay. But um, one thing that is kind of important for, I guess, the context of that question to to realize is that um, Athena Health Solutions. You're right. It is it is um, electronic health records. It's also you know sort of practice management and revenue cycle. 
and its patient portal. So it's all of the, the tools that a physician practice would need to, mm. to run the business and, and, and treat their patients. Okay. And those, those solutions are cloud-based and all of, and, and it is, um, we believe that the largest SaaS network services or software as a service mm-hmm. network in, um, in our, in our space. And so essentially what that means is that all of our customers use the same version of the software and all of the data is, um, is, is, you know, consistent with one another and, 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 and housed in the, in the same place. And so what that allows us to do is it allows us to use that data for a number of different purposes. We use it to obviously improve our products, um, you know, so we can observe how people are using the tools and we can use those observations to make the, 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 the solutions easier, faster, um, less cumbersome. We can use the data to work with our customers directly on their uh, actions and activities. So we can say, you know, customer A, we see that you're, um, you know, that this particular financial metric is a little bit out of balance with what we see across the rest of the network. You know, here are some suggestions that we have for how you can fix that. Hmm. But we can also um, look at big industry issues. We can use our data essentially for the common good to say there are big things that we know are happening in healthcare. Hmm. Um, there are challenges that all of our customers and all of the, you know, the folks across the healthcare ecosystem are wrestling with. Our data can provide some insight into those yeah. conversations and into those challenges. So we don't ever pretend that we know everything because we don't but we hope that the insights that we can generate through the research that that my team does, we hope that those insights can um, can contribute to the conversation and can um, advance the conversation in conjunction with all of the other good work that's happening in so many other parts of the of the industry. I like that. You know, that's really the promise of big data, isn't it? That with with all this all this data that we're gathering, we can use analytics to gather. The signal from the noise, and that's that kind of leads me to my next question: How do you how do you do that? How do you find signal about industry issues among the the noise of of so much patient data, clinical, financial, all sorts of data, right? Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is the job of the researcher, right? Is to understand what you're is to is to know mm-hmm. what you're looking for. So. Um, Research is really all about figuring out what the right questions to ask are. And so when you have a good question and you can match it with a good source of mm-hmm. data, uh, then you can get to really interesting insights. So, you know, probably 80%, my, my team might quibble with me on the percentages, so don't hold me to it, but a, a significant majority of the time that we spend is really just trying to figure out what is the right question to ask, because you're right, it's if all you're doing is looking at raw data, you're really not going to find anything. You have to be able to shape it and you have to be able to query it and you have to know what you're looking for, or you at least have to have a hypothesis for what you're looking for. So, you know, we spend a lot of time um, talking to customers and learning from people who talk to our customers and learning from other smart people in the industry. You know, I think it's really important to be a part of those industry conversations if you want to be able to mm. contribute to them. So it's, you know, a lot of the usual suspects following the right people on Twitter and uh, following the right people on LinkedIn and subscribing to the right newsletters. But it's um, it's really about listening 
and it's about understanding the pain points or the or the, the problems that the folks you're trying to do this for are trying to solve or are really wrestling with and then trying to connect those needs with the with the data and the and the insights that that, that we have and figuring out kind of where they where they overlap so the next obvious question for me is what kind of insights are you pulling out as you're as you're looking at uh, different trends that are happening in the industry what is what questions are you asking and what are some of the answers you're coming up with? Well, not surprisingly, a lot of the work we've done over the last year has um, in some way, shape or form related to the experience that we've all gone through as a country and as an industry and as a globe mm -hmm. around COVID. So um, one of the one of the early trends that took shape very quickly, if you cast your mind back to March, April of 2020, actually probably April, May of 2020, we all of a sudden started to see a tremendous amount of activity in the area of telehealth and virtual care. So we saw a bunch of regulations and restrictions relaxed in an effort to ensure that patients could maintain some degree of access with their, with their caregivers and, and, mm. and vice versa, even at um, even as practices were temporarily closing their doors or, or, or discouraging patients from coming in for anything other than true than true emergencies. So, so we knew that, that telehealth was a thing that was happening. Um, we have a number of partners that we worked with at the time who offered telehealth services. Those partners would connect into our uh, into our network. We subsequently, um, over the course of about eight weeks, developed our own telehealth, our, a native telehealth system for, for our users. But we, from a research perspective, were just really interested in understanding what the, uh, what the use cases were and how people were using telehealth. So we knew that, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, which you can't see, we knew that telehealth was happening. But we wanted to understand how that looked in the real world. And so one of the things that we did was we started to look at just sheer volume of telehealth utilization. And of course, like everyone has reported, we saw it going up uh, significantly. But then we started to dig a little bit deeper and we start, we wanted to understand were there differences in the way different types of practices were using virtual care. And one of and and you know this was sort of playing out at around the same time as um, the 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 racial justice protests mm -hmm. and one of the underpinnings of the conversation around virtual care has been will it will it help or hinder access to care for those who don't have otherwise regular access to it and so we started to look at some of those um, demographic. Uh, volumes, and we were we were trying to see. You know, we were curious: do um, do do racial or ethnic minorities have a difference in the way they're using virtual care or telehealth versus versus white patients? And what was really interesting, it was a little bit surprising, was that we found, at least in our data, that there wasn't as meaningful a difference on that front as there was on on a couple of other metrics. And so, what? It, long story short, and I'm I'm going on a little too long on this, but, but what we learned is that if the practice itself decided that 
telehealth was something that they wanted to offer to their patients. The patients in that practice were disproportionately more likely to use telehealth than in a practice that didn't make that decision, mm. which sounds completely self-evident when I say it. But what it means is that if, if you're in a practice that is a, um, as a relatively high utilizer of telehealth, mm -hmm. that relatively high level of utilization doesn't change when you look at racial or ethnic categories. It doesn't really even change as much as we would have expected by age. Hmm. And that's another sort of myth that we were able to not, not dispose of, but I think bring a little bit of nuance to, which is that older patients will use telehealth if they're if the provider or if the practice more, more, more likely, if the practice makes it easy for them to do it, if they encourage them to do it, if they, if they spend a little bit of time teaching them how to do it, older patients will use, will use telehealth. And so I think that that was another really interesting thing that we looked at. Um, we also looked at some trends around mental health diagnoses um, throughout the, throughout the pandemic, um, because there was a, and is a lot of concern about the impact that COVID and the sort of concomitant social changes that have been happening at the same time have had on, on mental and, and behavioral health. And we're just um, finishing up a sort of a different type of study, which was more survey-based than, um, than network-based around um, clinician experience, physician burnout, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's really interesting, uh, especially what you're saying around around telehealth. I mean, it seemed like the consensus was, hey, everyone's staying home and so everyone's using telehealth. But it sounds like if the practice emphasizes it more, then that maybe is that the primary driver? The fact that telehealth was available during pandemic, the, the throes of the pandemic. Uh, it, it just makes sense. I mean, it just makes logical sense that people would want to stay home and mm -hmm. want to engage virtually. But it sounds like it's th there's there's a little bit more to do with the practice's willingness to engage that way than it than yeah. it does with with just the pandemic itself. It, yeah, it's it's true. So the 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 pandemic was absolutely a sort of a forcing function mm. for a lot of these decisions that practices made, but not every practice made the decision to use telehealth for some specialties. It's just not as um, it's just not as appropriate. Mm. It's not as clear what the, what the use case is. Right. Um, so, you, know, you, you see some, you see some variation there. Um, you know, there, there, but, but I do think that we saw a tremendous acceleration in terms of, so there were some there were some cultural barriers there there were some big barriers around telehealth utilization that that relate to reimbursement and um, regulatory restrictions around how and when it could be used before before the pandemic and so but putting those aside there was also some some cultural there were some cultural barriers to its use both on the side of the patient and the side of the of the provider or the or the physician and i think that we've we've seen those cultural barriers falling pretty quickly and the, the the receptiveness to telehealth feels like something that is going to stay. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball obviously, right. but it just sort of 
my, my, my gut tells me that it's going to be um, something that, that, that stays, that stays with us, even if we don't see, you know, 40% of total volumes being, con- being conducted during telehealth anymore, being conducted via telehealth anymore, like we did at the height of the, the, the lockdown mm-hmm. uh, restrictions. Even if we're not seeing that, I do think we're going to see it kind of settling in at a higher steady state, at a much higher steady state than we did before the pandemic. And it sounds like based on the data that you've looked at, that it has a lot to do with how the provider wants to emphasize it. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it says a lot, to me at least, about the power of that relationship and the, the, the power of the trust that exists between um, physicians or, you know, primary care providers and their patients. Yeah. Because if, if your doctor says to you, Don, I'm recommending that we connect, you know, in this way, because it's safer for you, it's safer for the staff mm-hmm. and it's more convenient. You're, you're probably going to be more likely to do that. Yeah. Um, and you, if, so, so I think it says really powerful things about the the degree to which the trustedness, the, 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 the trusting relationship between patients and, and, and providers sort of made itself felt. That's fantastic. That's, that's, a, that's great detail to pull out of that data. You know, you have a wide customer base and you've seen that, you know, some evidence of the impact that COVID can have on a physician practice, I'm sure. What does the data reveal to you about how practices were impacted and how they're coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, it's um it was a it was a very difficult year and there's been a lot that's been written. It's I you know, I'm I'm not taking this as much from our data as I am from just other um other other elements or other other um studies that we've that that, that have been shown and just yeah. other um pieces that have been written, but um you know, it was a particularly for ambulatory physicians, and um, you know, by by that I'm, I mean, and I'm sh- I'm sure that your listeners know this, but just in case, mm-hmm. um, physicians who practice primarily in the outpatient setting as opposed to in the hospital setting, um, for ambulatory physicians, it was a deeply, deeply um, scary and uncertain year. Um, and I'm, you know, 2020 was, um, you know, a a lot of practices had to close their doors temporarily. Um, a lot of them didn't know at the time when, or if they would be able to reopen those doors, Hmm. um, you know, and it was, it was really important to us that we, that we work with our, with our customers to make sure that they, um, had the support and the services that they needed in order to maintain that that connection with their patients, which is one of the reasons why we worked so hard. So many teams within our company worked so hard to to bring to bring to reality uh, the native telehealth um, capability that we were that we were able to to release to our customers last last May, because mm. um, it was one of the um, it seemed at the time, and I think it bore it turned out to be true. That was one of the best ways for those physicians to stay in touch with their patients. And I think as scary as the financial situation was for a lot of, for a lot of doctors, the, the losing touch with their patients was, was 
a true existential dilemma um, for for a lot of the folks that we that we talked to, and they were, you know, just terrified that their patients were not going to be able to get the support that they needed. And so we wanted to make sure that we that we were able to support our customers as they supported their patients. And so I think that that um, you know that willingness to learn new ways to engage with patients and patients learning new ways to engage with their doctors was a was a was a really powerful um, was a really powerful evolution across a very short period of time uh, that, that 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 we saw coming coming out of the coming out of the COVID pandemic. Mm. And you know, I don't, I don't know that we know yet what the final impact, because we're not out of COVID yet, and so I don't know that I can say with any kind of certainty what the what the impact of COVID has been. I can just say that the the uncertainty continues um, for for a lot of the folks that we that we talk to, and I don't think there will be a single moment where we can say, "Yep, everything's everything's back to normal," mm. but hopefully. Um, as the years go by, we'll be able to look back and say, yes, it is normal now, whatever that turns out to mean. Whatever the new normal is, what do you think that that long-term, from a long-term perspective, how would, how do you think the pandemic will change the way that we see physicians practice? You know, one of the things that I am really interested in tracking or, or, or keeping, keeping an eye on is the is the degree to which um, physician practices start to kind of actively pursue different business models, um, which sounds really boring and and not very sort of mission driven. But <laughs> when I when I say that, it's you know one of the one of the things that caused the biggest problem for physician practices was that. So, so much of the business of medicine is still based on this fee-for-service business model. Right. And that meant that when the service disappeared, so when the, when the, when the patients were no longer physically able to present themselves in the clinic, that left, that, that, that was, um, that, that meant that cash flow stopped, mm -hmm. um, revenues stopped. And so I'm going to be interested and I don't have, um, I don't have a good way to measure this right now, but I think that one of the anecdotal things that I heard a lot about during 2020 was a renewed interest in different um, different reimbursement models. You know, there was some um, appetite for saying, "Gosh, if we'd only been on a on a you know if we if we'd had some some capitated business, if we'd had some um, you know per member per month arrangements coming in, we would have we would have been in 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 better shape than if we'd only." you know, had, had this, this, this fee for service revenue, or if we'd had some, um, some direct contracting relationships, you know, maybe, maybe that, that would have looked different. So, so I think that that's something that we will continue to see evolve. And I think that's, that's going to be really, really interesting to watch. Um, I think that another, another thing that's quite interesting has been the, there's, there's been a lot written and a lot um, announced about the just torrent of investment money that's going into digital health right now. And, um, you know, 2020 was a record setting year. 2021 is, is on a, is on track to be another record setting year in terms of the total number of dollars invested. And what I, what I think that is going to influence most is the way that patients and consumers 
see their relationship with the healthcare delivery system. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know exactly what it's going to look like um, in the future, but I do think that some of the fundamental assumptions about what an individual's relationship with the healthcare delivery system is, um, are, is, is, is coming into question right now. Yeah, things are definitely not going back to the way they were in 2019. How did things change at Athena Health in terms of COVID and the pandemic? How did things not change? (laughs) It feels like everything changed. Um, Well, I'm sitting here uh, talking to you from my home office in Birmingham, Alabama, and I have not uh, traveled to our corporate headquarters in Watertown, Massachusetts in 16 months. And um, that is probably the biggest way that it changed. And I know that we are 100% not alone in that. But, um, you know, from a from a more, um, I guess, from a more industry level perspective, I think one of the things that we learned about ourselves is just how, how quickly we can pivot if the outside world demands it of us. I, I think I, I mentioned our uh, the, the the work we did on on telehealth. I think that the the work that we are doing around um, uh, creating a more um, uh, a better a better clinician experience um, through things like voice recognition and um, voice voice dictation, all of those have kind of come to fruition across the course of 2020 and the first part of 2021. So, um, you know, it did speed things up for us, for us a little bit, um, but hopefully in a way that is, that is good for our customers and, and, and good for the, for the industry as a whole. I think the other thing, it's, it's sort of a more, another level of abstraction is that it really reinforced for us the importance of creating and maintaining better, deeper, denser connections between all of the relevant stakeholders across the healthcare delivery system. You know, we've been we've been thinking about connecting doctors and connecting hospitals for for, for a really long time, but I think the the recognition that the that the that the need for connection is probably the biggest thing standing between us and kind of a thriving, healthy healthcare ecosystem. That was something that COVID really brought into into high relief for us. It 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 it's not like it was news that the healthcare industry or the healthcare ecosystem is a fragmented one, but those mm. those chasms and those fissures became um, much more apparent over the last eighteen months or so. Man, it's definitely a silver lining. And, you know, one of the things that that is great about all the changes that are happening in healthcare. I mean, for the last decade, we've been focused on value-based care. And I think that has helped to remove some of the fragmentation and uh, really bring doctors and hospitals and and payers working together rather than focusing on, uh, you know, their different focuses, right? Uh, their, their, their incentives are aligning. And I think uh, to, to the point that you were making, if, if COVID uh, can, can drive the point home that we're better connected and we, we, we are better for our patients and our members, whatever perspective you have, when we are connected, then I think that's a win. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it does feel like we are on 
the cusp of a, something different. And that's, that's not a very precise um, characterization of it, but when you add the very real impact that COVID has had on the, on the industry with the, the fact that there have been major changes in the regulatory environment with the 21st Century Cures Act coming into full effect across the last across the last few months, um, it does feel it does feel like we are on the verge of finally being able to make progress on this problem that we have recognized is a problem for as long as I've been having these types of conversations. And so, you know, you think about the 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 the, the big tech companies that are that are getting involved. You think about the the requirements of the 21st Century Cures Act. You think about the the increasing appetite for and um, uh, you know kind of willingness to engage in value based care. As you said, that those are all things that I think are lending themselves to. The, the the thing that makes all of those work, the thing that links all of those things together is better, richer, deeper connections between mm. all of the different stakeholders, all of the different participants in the in the healthcare ecosystem. I love that. So Birmingham, Alabama, that's a long way from Washington, DC. In 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 a lot of ways. Yes, <laughs> it is. What brought you there? I have um I have family here. I I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and um, oh, really? other my mother is still there. My my brother is here in in Birmingham, and we moved down here almost exactly nine years ago um, to be a little bit closer to 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 both of them. That's pretty great. Uh, I was going to say Jackson, Mississippi, is a long ways from New Haven, Connecticut, too. In in so many ways, <laughs> it was it's a it's it's a place I'm very very proud to be from. I have a lot of people who um who I who I grew up with who are who are still there. I make it back there as as often as I can. It's um you know Mississippi and 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 Alabama are very different places. Um, mm. They're both places that have a very strong um, emotional emotional pull for me. Well, that's fantastic. I love talking with people from all over the place. I'm from the West. I'm from the Intermountain West in Salt Lake City. So uh, one thing I would have imagined would be part of this conversation is a, a small Southern drawl, but I'm not hearing it at all. <laughs> well, just, uh, it, all, all of my colleagues, and I'm sure that, that uh, you know, if you ask any of them, they'll tell you that I fully, I, I insist on the fact that y'all is the greatest word in the English language. I have always <laughs> said that. And I, um, I will, I will maintain that. So <laughs> I think it just depends on what I'm talking about. If you get me talking about Alabama football, you might hear a little bit more of it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think y'all is, is quite functional and, and there are many languages that have that kind of, uh, you know, you, everyone within it. And so the fact that our, our, our friends in the South give us y'all, I think is, it's quite, quite beneficial and quite appropriate. Well, we're 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 more than welcome to share it with with all of you out there in the in the Intermountain West as well. I appreciate that. I do. So let's shift gears a little bit. You know, Athena Health. It's an organization that is in a lot of administrative parts of healthcare, and so I would imagine that your organization. It, it's a large organization, and it has some sway. You have a big platform within a space that I think is gaining 
I'm hesitating because it sh- it seems like it's a word that we've been talking about for decades, but interoperability, it seems like it's gaining more, just, just more momentum right now in, in, in this, in, in this time of change. So maybe you can talk about how you're using that platform that you have, uh, you know, and, and this, this question is a little bit, a little bit based on the fact that you mentioned that, uh, you know, you want to, as an organization, use your influence with, you know, the, the fact that you have a, such a big data platform. So how are you using your influence around interoperability? You know, it's such a, it's such a good question. And it, it's, it's hard to know where to start. So Athena, hmm. Athena Health was one of the early um, kind of proponents of this concept of a f- of free and open access to healthcare data and healthcare data mm-hmm. exchange. And we were one of the early adopters of the big, um, you know, information sharing hubs like Commonwealth and Care Quality. We were one of the first um, cloud-based um, entities, and we were we were one of the first to make all of our APIs, our, our um, you know, kind of. Uh, communications protocols um, available to anyone who wanted to to build on them. So this is something that we have been all about and been um, championing for a really, a really long time. But I do agree with you that it feels like the conversation is taking on a new level of momentum. And I think some of that is just because of the, the changes in the regulatory environment that are making it a lot harder to be against interoperability. It's now illegal to be interoperability. (laughs) You know, I think that um, one of the, one of the, one of the things that we believe and that we work very hard to kind of articulate is that interoperability means something very specific. I think particularly to a tech oriented audience, it's, you know, people's minds immediately go to data standards and, and um, you know, tech, technical exchange standards and, and, and things like that. I think there is a bigger conversation, and this is something that we are talking a lot about at, at Athena right now, about what is um, what is the goal that we're ultimately working towards. And we've decided that the goal of simply exchanging information is probably not, it's, it's, uh, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And so we really want to start to push ourselves and um, to the extent that we have any, any influence or, or anyone wants to, wants to join us, we want, to, we want the rest of the industry to start to think about this idea of experiential interoperability. And by that, I mean, it is, it's great to share the, 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 the details of a patient visit at one place with a provider in another place. But if that information doesn't come to that second provider in a way that is immediately actionable and usable, if you have to, you know, go into a separate application to view it, or if you have to somehow manually type the new information that you get from one place and put it into, into your system manually, like that's not really interoperable. So you've shared the data, but it's not, um, it's not being shared in a way that makes the that makes the doctor's job any easier. 
it's not being shared even in a way that makes that makes the patient's job any any easier so we are really thinking hard about what can we do to make sure that as as information is shared it's shared in a way that is um kind of immediately um integratable if that's a word um into the workflow yeah. of the clinician or into the um it, I know it's weird to, to, to say that patients have a workflow, but they do. You know, patients have a mm. job in all of this. It's not one that they necessarily like. It doesn't right. work very well, but they do have a job in all of this. So I think, you know, thinking about the job of the patient and thinking about the job of the physician and how can we make data sharing seamless enough that it is also effortless to get the benefit of that information when and when and where you need it. That's sort of the 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 elevate the elevation, um, if that's if that's the right term, of the conversation mm -hmm. around interoperability, and and you know I I've even tried to stop using that word interoperability. I think it's really more about connectivity and about making sure mm -hmm. that information is flowing seamlessly, frictionlessly, um, safely, and uh, in a way that that minimizes the burden on both the sender and the receiver of that information. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Connectivity that has a different connotation than interoperability. Mm -hmm. You know, you are as an organization, just as I'm, I'm looking into Athena health, you're, you're like a, a tech company, right? A healthcare tech company. And you see big tech companies like Amazon and Google using data. They've got tons of data. You think about all, all the data that Google has, and Amazon has, it's it's a little mind boggling actually how much they have access to, but they're using that data to improve consumer experience. And you've mentioned that you're using data to gain insights. So, you know, I, I have two questions based on that. The first question is what can a healthcare company learn in general, healthcare companies in general, learn from how tech innovators are using data? It's again a really it's a really interesting thing to think about, and um, you know when you think about how a Google or an Amazon uses the data, there I mean there are a bazillion ways in which they use data, but one of the really critical ones is is to do exactly what we were talking about just a moment ago. They are making all sorts of transactions and all sorts of experiences for users on the web more frictionless. They are serving up exactly what they think you want to see, need to see, based on everything that they know about you. And that is, um, depending on your perspective, either really creepy or really convenient, <laughs> right? Like, right. it's, it's, yeah, it's exactly. um, it could be both. But I think that healthcare has something to learn and healthcare technology in particular has a very important lesson that we can and should be taking from those um, from those capabilities, which is we can and should, and this is something that we're we're um, you know, thinking hard about at at Athena. Um, we should be thinking about how can we use what we know about the users of our tools to make the experience to make their experience in using those tools more delightful, less burdensome, um, a little bit more friction free. So. You know, a great example of this is the what what's what's commonly referred to as the, as the physician's inbox. So, you know, the the, the physician is um, getting messages from patients, and they're getting lab results from uh, tests that they've ordered, and they're getting 
you know, all sorts of things from all sorts of places. And it just sort of stacks up and stacks up and stacks up. They're even getting like unsolicited some, and sometimes they're getting, you know, pizza menus that are faxed to their offices from, from, from local restaurants. So a, a, a smart system will use data, will, will, will know kind of what the, what the pieces of information in that inbox are that the clinician really, really needs to see first and which are the mm -hmm. ones that may be a little bit less important. And so can help to curate that information and make the information that is presented to that, to that clinician much more, um, much more immediately relevant and immediately usable. And all yeah. of that is, is, you know, a function of uh, AI, machine learning, big data, et cetera. So, so that's just one, one example. Yeah, I think it's a great example. And just using an example from my own experience, I'm on an Exchange server. I bought into to Microsoft Exchange for my email. And one of the greatest things about it is the fact that their artificial intelligence can read my email and say, hey, you haven't responded to this email. And it seems like it might be important. Maybe you should respond to that. I get an email like that from Microsoft from Cortana every morning. And that's, and that's, and I, I, I get those emails too. And I keep saying, Cortana, stop nagging me. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we, we obviously have different experiences with the same, uh, <laughs> with the same, same email, but I, I think it's helpful. And I'll, I'll bet the doctors think it's helpful too. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, um, it, I, I think sort of the, the, the flip side of what we were just talking about, and it's a little bit of a cautionary tale is that you know, one of the big challenges that those, that the big tech companies have right now is around the, earning the trust of the people whose data they are using for this, yeah. this purpose. And yeah. that is something that I, um, you know, that I, that I, I, I hope that healthcare learns from because healthcare organizations and healthcare providers and the healthcare technology companies that serve them um, have a tremendous responsibility to make sure that they are using data in a way that is beneficial for ultimately the patient. And so when, when we make the clinician's job easier, it is, we believe, leading to, to, to better patient care. But I think it's really important that we always remember that the, the, the data that is being used is, um, you know, is, is a, I hope it doesn't sound um, sort of goofy to call it a sacred trust, but I kind of think it is a sacred trust. And um, that's something that I, that we need to make sure that healthcare is, um, is, is, is always protected from. Jessica, it sounds like you've been in healthcare for a while because I think most people who are in the healthcare industry think of what they do, uh, regardless of how clinical it is clinical or not clinical as a sacred trust. And so you, you started out being non-clinical, focused on uh, history and, and research and, and applying what you learned to the healthcare industry, but you've been here for a while. So I do want to get your perspective on what you think, if there was one thing you change about healthcare today, what would that be? This is, this is when everyone listening to this is going to realize what it huge nerd I am because it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little, it's a little wonky. Those people who know me know are already know this, but um, you know, if I could, if I could wave a magic wand, I would figure out a way 
to make a, a standardized data language for mm-hmm. healthcare. Um, and there are, you know, a million different very good reasons um, why this doesn't exist today. The, 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 the art and science of medicine is really complex. Um, patients and physicians as individuals and people are really complex. But, you know, one of the things that always strikes me, and again, I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who, who, who thinks about how to use data a lot, but right. so much of what we struggle with in healthcare gets back to the fact that the information that your doctor can captures about you can differ so dramatically from the information that my doctor captures about me, even Mm. if you and I happen to have very, very similar health conditions. So, you know, if, if we could figure out how to get more of the story captured in structured data versus letting it hang out in unstructured notes, and, and and this is really important. And if we could make sure that we do that in a way that doesn't make the 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 capturing of that information even more agonizing than it already is for the people who who have to to do that job, then that I important. do believe we could we could help doctors make better decisions. We could help patients make better decisions. We would save everyone a boatload of time. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are folks who would quibble with me on this, and I'm sure that there are, you know, mm. nuances to this that that would make for a really great conversation. But but I, I, I do think that our ability to um, make work easier is in some ways, um, um, I don't want to say hamstrung, but it's, 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 it's limited today by, by the data that we have. And the more we can, we can create standardized approaches to to information management i think that it allows us to um, learn better from those uh, from those data you know i do think it's a very it's very important and that the outcome that you're talking about is is critical we we can do so much better in healthcare if we had some if we had standardized data you think about how how easy going back to the tech companies what microsoft and amazon and google do for us uh, how much more convenient they make our lives because they they can you know work with the data that they have and there's so much data out there in the healthcare space and the fact that we can't it's siloed and when it's not siloed it can't speak to each other I uh, you you make a, a an incredibly great point to that point one of the things that relatively you know the relative lack of structured data makes a lot harder is the ability to connect different systems of record to one another because you know there's a, just a when when you when you have a different way of recording blood pressures in one system from another system like you have to somehow make those two ways of capturing the data talk to one another or if you if you want to get the benefit of unstructured notes and um, have that be more than just hundreds of pages of, of cut and pasted text like that's mm-hmm. that's where that those two concepts come together. Well, one one way that I might differ with you a little bit is, okay, there there there, <laughs> I differ from you in one way, and that's I don't know that we need to impose structure on the notes, um, but I do be, because I agree that we have we have a uh, a responsibility to the physicians and to, to the clinicians to not make things onerous, and I think structure makes things, it bogs down the process, right? And so isn't there, 
isn't there a way and I, I'm not a technologist I'm I'm just coming up with ideas and, and thinking thoughts and that is can't we impose structure on the lack of structure can't we impose structure on using natural language processing or some yeah. other kind of AI machine learning to, to really get that so we can translate all the data that's out there into that one common language. I, 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 I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, we both maybe run the risk of getting beyond our, our knowledge. Um, I'm not a, <laughs> a, an AI expert by any stretch. I'm totally over my skills. But I, I know but that. But I do, I do completely agree with you that adding more boxes to click and more drop-down menus to scroll through is not the right answer. That's that is not yeah. what I <laughs> what I wanted yeah. to to to, to, to sure. leave you with. And I I and, and that's why I, I said you know it's so important. You asked me if I had a magic wand, and so I would I would use my magic wand to make sure that whatever we do does in no way makes the job of the person having to use these tools more more difficult because that is. Um, that's that's absolutely a, a, a non-starter right there. Hundred percent. So one of the reasons I started this podcast in general was because the conversation around healthcare just was wrong <laughs> to me. The conversation around, I mean, it's easy to talk about the problems and point out the problems with healthcare because we all see them. It's too costly. The quality can be better and satisfaction just is not uh, where it should be with within patients. But it just seemed like the solutions that were out there I, I weren't going to do the job in making quality better and improving cost and improving satisfaction. So um, I guess that's, that's a long way of, of getting to my next question, which is what is it that you see in terms of the conversation about healthcare that you would like maybe the, the general public to, to see, to realize if, if, if the public, if, if there was one point you could make to a reader of the New York times about what's really happening in healthcare, what would that be? I guess I would go back to a fundamental sense of optimism that we are, we are, we are at a moment where, technology is poised to fulfill on its promise to improve healthcare as opposed to making healthcare more difficult, more fragmented, more siloed. There seems to be a confluence of factors coming together that make me think that the, that now really is different. And I, I hope that I don't look back five years from now and say, Gosh, Jessica, how naive you were. Um, right, which is always entirely possible. But um, <laughs> I do, I do think that we are at a point where technology can play the role that we always hoped it could, which is to support better relationships and better connections between all of the different stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem. And I. I I do, I do think that the, the traditional sort of, you know, protagonists and antagonists in the, in the, in the story, I think all of that is shifting around a little bit. You're seeing just unprecedented levels of collaboration between um, mm. payers and providers. You're seeing um, 
you know, a, a, a not just a willingness, but an active, you know, pursuit of information sharing and making that information usable at, at the point of care, using technology to take work away as opposed to adding more, more burden. So I, I guess I hope that as we look back across what has been, I guess, the last 10 to 15 years, I hope that when we, you know, 20 years from now, when we look back on that time, we'll see it as a, a painful blip, but a, but, a, but a blip on a journey towards, um, towards a more constructive partnership between, um, between all of the various stakeholders in this, in this healthcare ecosystem. And I think the thing that's going to make those partnerships work is, is, is better connection, is, is better, more usable information flowing through open pipes um, with, you know, safety and, 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 and security protocols foremost, but um, making that information usable in the moment, um, regardless of, of, of how that stakeholder uh, wants, to, wants to connect, making, making it possible for anyone to connect with anyone else with a with a minimum of effort and a minimum of um, of drama. <laughs> well, I couldn't agree more, Jessica. This has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you, Don. I really enjoyed it. I um, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Tell us how uh, if, if someone wants to learn more about you, about Athena Health, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Well, if you um, want to get uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at uh, jsweeneyplatt at athenahealth.com. I welcome um, any and all uh, connections. Uh, please do check out athenahealth.com itself. There's a ton, all of the research that we've done, data and otherwise, is, um, is on that site and uh, would love to have folks engage with that and reach out to me and let me know, let me know what you think. And then, you know, I'm at Sweeney Platt on Twitter although I, I don't tweet very often. It's all good. Yeah, I'll have to go to the website and see what kind of research you've got out there. That's that's really interesting to me. Hey, thanks again. Once again, great conversation and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Don. Appreciate it.